First Timothy chapter 3, we are working our way through this great book, and we come today to a passage that speaks very much of the implications of the resurrection of Christ and the life that we have in Him. First Timothy chapter 3, we have come to verse 14 in the text. First Timothy 3 and verse 14 where Paul writes to his protege Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Christ's followers have been gathering on the first day of every week for nearly 2,000 years to proclaim that Jesus the Messiah is alive and well. He arose bodily from the dead. He ascended physically into glory. He is reigning from heaven's throne, and He will return to rule on earth. Jesus is alive and well. We also gather as a church today to bear witness that the living Christ has given His resurrection life to us. Through repentant faith in Jesus' death to pay the penalty of our sin, and through confident faith in Christ's resurrection from the dead, we have been spiritually reborn. So we do not assemble here today as a business. We do not assemble here today as a political party. We do not assemble as a social club. We gather as the church of the living God, born again by His Spirit, adopted as His children, and functioning together as His family. Some of you may come and say, I'm here just as a visitor. Maybe some would even claim to say, I know I'm not a Christian, I don't follow the way of Christ, and I really don't understand it all. I think it's important for you, as you gather with us here today, to understand our self-concept as a church, to understand what the Bible teaches about who we are. And for Christians, it is our high calling to discern our true nature as a local church and to live accordingly to know what God has said in His Word and how He has formed us and who we are to be. This revelation, the revelation of our true nature, pulsates from these three verses at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 3. In these verses, the Apostle Paul pauses, in a sense, in his instructions to Timothy, who is giving leadership to the church at Ephesus. The Apostle pauses here to give perspective before delving into the second half of the book. It gives us perspective on this unique day of the year as we remember the resurrection of Christ, as we do each Lord's Day, but perhaps uniquely today. The Apostle says, I hope to come to you soon. 
He apparently writes from Macedonia, according to chapter 1 and verse 3, and he's instructing Timothy, who oversees the church there at Ephesus. He would prefer to instruct him face to face. Indeed, the apostle proposes to do so fairly soon, but if he is delayed, I have instructions for you to give you guidance. You need to understand, Timothy, how one ought to behave in the household of God, he says in verse 14. This word household is literally the word house, but as we understand it, putting it together with the context of the New Testament, it appears to be, in fact, the idea of family, or as translated here, household. The church is God's family. There are many New Testament evidences of this fact. And like any loving father, God has expectations for the behavior of his children. This is his family. It's stunning revelation when you think of it. There is nothing like it in any other religion that the creator and the sustainer of the universe calls us, his people, his family. Our conduct and function as a church, as I've said then, is not to take its cues from the business world or the political world or from some social structure of our culture. We are God's children across the planet, and here, located in this place, we are God's children, a local assembly of those who are to live as if we are God's children. The church as family, as I said, is a theme that's mentioned throughout the New Testament, but think of it just here in this book, chapter 1 and verse 2 of 1 Timothy. Notice there, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, We see that familial language, my true child in the faith. Go to chapter 5 and verse 1. In chapter 5 and verse 1, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. And perhaps the most poignant reference, chapter 3 and verse 4, giving the qualifications of overseers in the assembly, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4, Paul writes, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. What does that have to do with anything? It doesn't have anything to do with anything when it comes to hiring a CEO in this world or a professional coach or a great musician for an orchestra. It doesn't matter at all what their family life is like. I think, I think it matters more than people think. But you can be successful at all of these things. But, verse 5, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, there's the word, how will he care for God's church? In other words, God's church is a family. And we see this back in chapter 3 and verse 15. If I delay that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. A man wrote to me some time ago delineating several points of disagreement that he had with me as a pastor. Most of the items were just administrative things, really didn't make a lot of difference, but one really struck a chord with me, and I think really got to the heart of the matter of the differences between us. He wrote, I disagree with you that the church is a family. He rejected the concept that a church's function and environment should reflect a family model rather than a business or a political model. And I I was disappointed that I could not persuade him in his thinking. 
But I was also thrilled. I was thrilled when I thought, here was a man who knew our church to some degree and knew what the model was. He recognized this church's fundamental orientation. The local church is God's family. There's a reason that we say this. The reason is divine revelation. This is what God has indicated about what His church is, the church that He purchased with His blood. And we have not, and by the grace of God, will not follow a business model or a political model as the way in which our church functions. We are a spiritual family. This is how God has saved us and how He has brought us together. The church of God is a family. Secondly, we find as to the nature of the church that the local church is a holy assembly of the living God. The end of verse 15. This household of God, this family of God, is the church of the living God. A church, it's a common Greek word that simply meant an assembly of people called out from the larger population. Could be any kind of assembly, but the New Testament authors grabbed onto this idea, this concept, and said this fits the idea of the church very well. And they used this term of church to refer to individuals who were called out of the world and joined by saving faith to Jesus Christ. So if you get the concept of circles, there is the circle of the world and there is the circle of the church. The church as an assembly are those called out of the larger circle of the world and placed within this assembly of God's people. For those that perhaps are seeking God today, you may say, I'm not a Christian, but I'm considering what it means. I think it is only truth in advertising to say there's two concepts here in the idea of church that are very important that you understand. To join the people of God involves separation from the world. It means that there is a distinct circle into which you enter that distinguishes you as a child of God. It's secondly, the follow-up on that or the other side of the coin is it involves identification with a people, with the people of God. There is a distinct loyalty and orientation that is to come as we receive Christ as Savior. A calling out of the world and an identification with that smaller group of people known as the people of God. Now, it's a great communion. It's a communion that stretches across the globe. And we have connections with that communion throughout this world. As I continue to reiterate these truths that I'm sharing with you now, we will share as a church with pastors and churches in Zambia, God willing, in just a few months. As we take the same message of Christ crucified and share in the communion of saints throughout the world. But having said that, there is a smaller identification within our community. We are called out of the world and we are identified with the people of God. So we are not assembled here today as a church in order to follow religious ritual. That's not our purpose. We assemble as the people of God to live out the new life that Jesus gave to us. We are the church, notice the next phrase at the end of verse 15, we are the church of the living God. It is a fundamental conviction of all biblical authors that God lives. To the Corinthian believers, Paul wrote, we are the temple of the living God. 
Paul called the pagan idolaters at Lystra to turn from their vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul, I think, perhaps using some irony here, saying you are people who are making idols. You need to come to worship the true and living God who made everything. You're the creator when it comes to your idols. He is the creator when it comes to reality. There is one living God. God is not a concept. He is not an impersonal force. He is not an idol sitting on a shelf. God is living and active. He is the immortal source of spiritual life for His church. He is the source of all the life that has been given to us. So the nature of this church that Christ has redeemed is a family. It is an assembly that is given life by the living God. It is thirdly, a pillar and buttress of truth we see at the end of verse 15. The church is a pillar and buttress of truth. Both provide ornamental and structural value to a building. In the ancient world, pillars were particularly valued. In Ephesus, the think of this, these people are reading this letter, having the letter read to them in assembly. In Ephesus, where there is the temple of Diana that has 127 grand pillars, each one the gift of a king, some of them studded with jewels and lined with gold. The Ephesians knew what a pillar was. It was a thing of great beauty. It was a thing of strength. God calls the local church a pillar and a buttress of the truth, a buttress, a support to the structure. God entrusts to the care of the church a body of truth. We are the pillar and buttress of truth. That is, we exist to support, to defend, and to adorn the truth of God. Now, that might seem fairly obvious. For most of us, I hope that it does. But we need to really think about how this applies within a local church and how a local church is to live and to understand itself. We are a pillar and a buttress of the truth. It means that our church is called to faithfully and accurately teach and proclaim the Word of God. It also means we are to faithfully defend God's Word against the assaults of falsehood. A local church that does not invest its energies in faithfully teaching and defending the truth of God is off the beam as to what God has designed for her to do. This is to be our life together. This is to be our focus together. It's not the business of the local church to gather together and to dream up ways to successfully market itself. It is not the business of a local church to spin its teaching or fashion its image to meet people's expectations. The calling of the local church is to uphold the truth of God, which means it needs to learn what that truth is saying, and it needs to understand then how that truth applies to the world in which it lives. And that will be a full-time job. On that note... Paul now turns to an ancient hymn that stands in here for a brief display of the grandeur of this truth that has been delivered to the church and that we uphold. We've sung some tremendous songs today. I thank God for those within the church that are writing deep truths to music, 
I'm thankful for the songs that we've been able to lift up today that speak to the truth that we believe. They're not songs that you can easily misinterpret. They're songs, if you know the truths of Scripture, that ring deeply within your soul. The text that we have sung. But I think we should also remember that this is a grand heritage. It is a heritage that goes back to the very beginning of the church. And we have here, I, I'm not going to take up time uh, today to talk through the structure of this poem that we find now in verse 16. And the reason I'm not going to do that is because there is all kinds of ink spilled over how we should break it up and exactly what it's doing. And it, it's amazing, the intricacies of this poem. But because of the way that the Greek text is put together, there seems to be a very high likelihood that this is a hymn rather than a creed or a confession. Either way, our hymns are, in a sense, creedal. That is, they speak of what we believe. And we have here an ancient hymn, the text of an ancient hymn. We could take out and exegete many of the hymns that we sung this morning. We could take them line by line, and I don't know how that hits you today, but some of these songs, they just one passage after another, one scripture text after another just hits you as you read line upon line and sing them. I don't want to do that too much here because a hymn needs to, in a sense, be taken as it is. That means that in deep hymns, those that will benefit most are those that know the Word of God the most. That's the way it is. When a church's every musical presentation is equal for everyone, I think it's missing something. In other words, every song is so light and so shallow that everybody takes it in virtually equally. What we find in this hymn, and what I believe we need to strive for in the hymns of our church, and what was displayed, I think, beautifully this morning, are hymns that have enough depth that those who know the Word of God are moved deeply in their soul. This is a deep hymn. Now, it's simplistic in its statement, but when you look at these ideas that are here, we see great depth. In fact, I have never, in 17 years of exegetical work in the original text of Scripture, ever taken more notes than on this verse. Pages and pages of analysis of what it means. I will only skim the surface, but... Let's come back to this. Who we are as the church of the risen Christ is connected to what we believe. It is connected to what God has done in time and space. Great indeed, says the apostle. Here's the truth that we uphold. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Mysteries, not some hidden secret now, but as the New Testament uses the term, it is something that was hidden in the past, but God has now revealed about His saving purposes, epitomized in the work of Jesus Christ. We have been singing today a mystery. That is, we have been singing what God has revealed about His saving purposes. Great indeed is this mystery of godliness. Notice the word godliness. There is to be a kind of behavior, a kind of lifestyle that follows from those who have indeed trusted Christ as Savior. This mystery is great. Here it is. 
in one him. He was manifested in the flesh. I think that he is without question a reference to Christ. He, and, and it's just taken, probably the hymn is just quoted as it came. So there might have been previous verses that explained that it was about Christ. But here we will fill in the word, Christ was manifested in the flesh. This is probably a reference to Jesus' incarnation. And on every one of these lines, there's all kinds of debate as to what it means, save perhaps the fifth of the six, believed on in the world or pro- proclaimed among the nations. But there's debate on, on virtually all of these. Jesus Christ, going back to the phrase, he was manifested in the flesh. What does that mean? Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came to earth to be born a man with a fully human body. This is essential to the doctrine of saving grace in Christ. There are those that have argued that this whole idea of the virgin birth of Christ, the virgin conception of Jesus, is not really necessary to become a Christian. Apparently, the ancient church would differ with that view. It starts off on this hymn, He was manifested in the flesh. When the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary so that she conceived, the eternal Word became flesh, and we saw the glory of God. He was vindicated by the Spirit. This is a highly debated phrase as to its meaning. It may be that Jesus was vindicated in His human spirit as a sinless man. And this was certainly the case. But in chapter 4 and verse 1, we find a reference to the Spirit that seems to be a reference to the Holy Spirit. And without any qualification, I'll take the idea here to be that. There are a number of times during Jesus' earthly ministry that this phrase might apply but none more dramatically than at His resurrection. The Spirit, of course, attested to his, at His baptism to who He was. But I think there's no other place than at His resurrection where Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. Do you remember Luke 22? Jesus stands before His accusers on the night of His betrayal, and He says to them, I am the Son of Man. It is as bold a claim of deity as could possibly be made. And they got the point. They wanted to stone him right on the spot. It's blasphemy what he has said. He has claimed deity here in our midst. Crucify him was the next cry that would be heard. Jesus said, I am the Messiah. Those who executed him were saying by his execution, no, you are not. God doesn't die. He certainly is not executed as a common criminal. When Jesus Christ, on that first day of the week, rose from the tomb, the Spirit of God said, yes, He is. It was God's vindicating voice. And this is the message that we find in the early chapters of Acts and throughout the book of Acts, the early speakers as they preach to various crowds, the constant refrain is that you put Him to death, but God raised Him to life. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, we find this commentary. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. In Romans 8 and verse 11, we find that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. The execution is no, you're not. The resurrection is yes, He is. And God has had the final word as Jesus defeated death. He was vindicated by the Spirit when 
he rose from the tomb. He was thirdly seen by angels, referring, I think, to his ascension. I draw that conclusion because this word, this Greek word translated seen, when it is used in the context of Christ, always refers to his post-resurrection appearances. So we'll just leave it there and say that that's what it refers to here. Of course, he was seen of angels in many situations, but probably referring ultimately to his ascension. That is, the risen Christ appeared to his followers through, several, through many days and then came to the place of ascension where he arose into the presence of God and was attended there by angels, some of whom, two of whom, spoke to those who saw Christ ascend. The emphasis falls then on the cosmic implications of Christ's resurrection. He conquered death and he triumphed over the spirit world and the angelic realm worshipped him. Now we perhaps have a second stanza with another three lines. He was proclaimed among the nations. It depends on how you break this up, and there's much debate on that. But he was proclaimed among the nations. The message of salvation from the wrath of God by means of faith in the death and resurrection of Christ is broadcast to the peoples of the earth. He was proclaimed among the nations. His victory over sin and death is announced triumphantly to all peoples. And as Jesus sent his followers out into the world, I thank God he didn't say, go just to the Israelites. He said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all people. We go in the power of Christ to share the truth of Christ crucified and risen with all. He was proclaimed among the nations. People broke down barriers to go into new places and to proclaim Christ crucified and risen. And he was believed on in the world. As he was manifested in the flesh, so he is believed on in the world. He is vindicated by the Spirit, so there are people who believe that he is indeed the Savior. And this is nothing less than a spiritual act of divine grace, that anyone would believe this story. But after nearly 2,000 years, people continue to place their trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus for their salvation from sin and God's wrath. And God continues to change people today through the same message. There's a string of nearly two millennia of transformed lives of people who have believed. Not in a myth, not coming to a ritual, not coming even to a religion where by their own good works they seek to please God and have standing in a community, but a message of a Jew that was crucified on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and rose from the dead. This message transforms. On the surface of it, it is unbelievable. But when the Spirit of God is active, He preaches the truth of this message to our hearts and says, it's true. It is the truth. And finally, He was taken up in glory. Christ ascended into heaven. He was exalted to a realm of glory. And now the risen and ascended Christ reigns from heaven's throne. This is the message of Scripture. You see how it beautifully fits with the first line. He was manifested in the flesh. That is, he came down to earth in human form. And now 
the fitting end, he was taken up in glory. This is the message we believe. This is the truth that we hold up and support. It is this revelation of Jesus Christ that defines the nature and purpose of an authentic Christian church. It is this body of truth that we are to defend as a sacred stewardship. And this realization should directly shape the orientation of a local church's ministry. So Paul takes a breath here in the middle of the book. He says, you know what I've said to you to this point about behavior in the church of God. I've got more to say in chapters 4, 5, and 6. But in all of this, let's never forget where we stand is with the conquering Christ who has given his life to his people. I appeal again to some who may be searching, wondering about Christianity and its, the possibility that it is true. I think one thing that's important to understand here, and you see it rising from this text, and all of us must hold to this, the self-identity of the local church is saturated in exclusivity. It's an exclusive message. You see it here. There is one living God. We may as well take the Bible and begin to tear it up to say that it gives any other message than this from cover to cover. There is one living God. And people may be deluded to think that there are many gods, but they're wrong. The Bible's message is there is one living God. If you see one bridge across a great chasm, you're really not going to be convinced by someone standing next to you and saying there's 50 bridges across there and you can choose any one that you want. The reality is there's one bridge. There's one living God. And passing from death to life must pass through this one living God. There's only two relationships with this one living God. It comes out of this passage, but it's certainly filled out in the New Testament. You're either reconciled to Him or you're under His condemnation. This is the Bible's message. We have come to be united in the family of God or we stand in a state of condemnation and alienation from Him. This exclusive message continues. There is one people of God. There is the world, and there is the assembly. There is the world, there is the family of God. These two divisions are seen consistently in the Bible as it plays out, as it reveals the truth of God. There is one living God, there is one people of God, and there is one body of truth. This truth was announced by God in the person of Jesus Christ who epitomizes that truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now there are many Christian churches who are toying with this exclusive message because it isn't particularly popular at the moment. It's never been popular. We all would like to believe that we can define truth for ourselves, but the message of Scripture is that there is one truth that reveals one living God, and through faith in that one living God, there is the formation of one people, the true church of Christ. If you have no sense that you have been reconciled to God, 
that you have joined God's family by turning from your sin and embracing by faith the salvation provided by Christ. I say this with all respect, but you are a spiritual orphan living under the condemnation of God. This is the message of Scripture. This is the reality. How could someone be so proud to say such a thing? Is it just a scare tactic? I'm under the condemnation of God. Now, get this right. Now I've got to join the church in order not to be under the condemnation of God. Is that how it works? No. This message comes from the Scriptures and comes from people who have all come to realize that we were indeed separated from God. No one who proclaims the message of salvation in Christ ever does so authentically unless he or she has seen themselves as lost. We simply proclaim this message because it is the message of Christ. It is the message of Scripture that begins in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There is a creator God and you owe Him. You owe your life to Him. The Scriptures unfold to show that this God has a law by which He commands His people, His creatures, that is, to obey what He has said to do and not to do what He has said not to do. And the experience of each one of us is that we don't obey God. We turn from Him. We disobey Him. And we break His law which places us under his condemnation and just judgment. But herein comes this great message that we rejoice in today, that Jesus Christ as God's Son took the full wrath of God upon himself and paid the penalty of sin. He paid the cost such that those who place their saving faith in his work on the cross and resurrection are given the life of God as a gift. And so there is a call here in this text, embedded though it is, there is a call throughout the entire Bible to turn from idols and self-sufficiency and to embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior. You don't have to join the family of God. But by not doing so, what it really is, is not being reconciled to Christ. As you are reconciled to Christ, you will do nothing but rejoice that you have joined the people of God. There is one God, one source of life. There is one people of God. There is one truth. There is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of us that have come to rejoice in this truth and have embraced it by faith, and you can identify and explain how you have come to be reconciled to Christ, we need to continually come to terms with the reality that this church belongs to Jesus. It's His. He has bought us with His blood. We fall short. We have many failings as a church. There is no question. There is much that we need to improve. But may we always see ourselves as Jesus' people, those that He has purchased with His blood, and ask ourselves as we carry out our life, 
What is God calling us to do as his family? We have received life from the living God, and we are called then to exercise faithful stewardship of his truth as we proclaim it. Today, we gather to celebrate this message of Christ crucified and risen through faith in that message, giving us his life. Tomorrow, we go out into this world to proclaim the message of Christ, proclaiming him among the nations that he might be believed on in the world, that we might with him be taken up someday into glory. As we sung today, oh, to see the dawn of that perfect day. We long for that day to come. May God bring it, and may he prepare each of us to meet him in faith. Let's bow for prayer.